Today's episode is made possible by Northwestern University Press and their new release, Little Armageddon, by poet Gregory Fraser. Little Armageddon describes everyday explorations, the small explosions within life, family, and quote-unquote ordinary survival. Fraser writes at eye level, detailing the experiences of fatherhood, love, and the quiet of daily life, poised at the brink of abrupt upheaval. These poems balance imagination and truth-telling with rich verse that brings the reader's ear closer to the quiet and how intense it truly is. Listeners of Between the Covers receive a 20% discount on Little Armageddon or any other Northwestern University Press title with promo code POD20. This offer is available at nupress.northwestern.edu. Today's episode is also brought to you by Forsyth Harmon's Justine, a debut illustrated novel that offers a sharp, intimate portrayal of girlhood on the edge of adulthood and the thin line between friendship and obsession. Hailed as show-stopping by Alexander Chi, urgent and exquisite by Melissa Phoebos, and unsettling, adoring, insightful, and even a little frightening by Victor Laval, the novel chronicles Long Island teenager Ali, who finds herself drawn to the enigmatic Justine after meeting her at the local Stop and Shop. During the ensuing weeks of summer 1999, Justine takes Ali under her wing, and Ali's fixation on Justine grows. She begins to reshape herself in her new idol's image, leading to a series of events that spiral from superficial to seismic. Justine is out on March 2nd from Tin House and available for pre-order now. I'm so excited for today's episode with Ross Gay, as Ross has been an important poet for me and also has felt like such a presence recently on the show. From the way his speech, his homage, his delivery of love to Nikki Finney became such a vital part of my conversation with her, or how reading Christina Sharp's In the Wake in preparation for today's conversation with Ross ended up shaping and informing my two conversations with Natalie Diaz, or just how many guests in the past have mentioned cherishing Ross's work, from Lydia Yuknovich to Tayemba Jess. Since Ross and I talked, it was announced his new book, Beholding, is a finalist for the Penn Gene Stein Award, along with past Between the Covers guest Matilda Bernstein-Sycamore for her new book, The Freezer Door. This award is given to a work which has broken new ground by reshaping the boundaries of its form and signaling strong potential for lasting influence. And Beholding is a book that is formally daring, dreaming and doing the impossible, a book-length poem that looks deeply at a mere few seconds of footage and that looking makes those seconds and what is being looked at in them become the world entire. This footage is sports footage of Dr. J's move called The Move, his baseline scoop from the 1980 NBA Finals. 
and I'll include a link to the video of this in the show notes, something you shouldn't miss, even if you couldn't care less about sports. And likewise, if you are a writer or artist who is sports-phobic or has a fatal allergy to sports, trust me, this book and this poem and this conversation is about so much from mushrooms and mycelial networks to cameras and the ethics of looking to slave ships to joy to, yes, basketball. For the bonus audio archive, Ross talks about the importance of Jean Valentine to him and reads one of her poems for us. You can find out more about how to subscribe to the bonus audio and look through the ever-growing variety of potential gifts and rewards you could receive for transforming yourself from a listener to a listener supporter by heading over to patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program with Ross Gay. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Today's guest is poet essayist, athlete, and gardener Ross Gay. Gay earned his MFA in poetry from Sarah Lawrence, his PhD in American literature from Temple University, and he currently teaches in the English department as core faculty at Indiana University in Bloomington, where he is also a founding member of the Bloomington Community Orchard, a publicly owned, volunteer-run, free fruit-for-all organic orchard where he has taught classes on everything from pruning to propagation. A football player as an undergraduate at Lafayette College, Ross Gay has coached basketball and was a founding editor of the online sports magazine, Some Call It Ballin'. But most people probably know Ross Gay as a poet. He is author of the poetry collections Against Which, Bringing the Shovel Down, and Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude, finalist for the National Book Award for Poetry, and winner of both the National Book Critics Circle Award and the Kingsley Tufts Poetry Award. Equally loved is Roske's first essay collection, The Book of Delights, which chronicles a year of a daily practice, birthday to birthday, of attending to the joys and wonders, however fleeting, on any given day, no matter how uncooperative that day is. Tayemba Jess says of the Book of Delights, Ross Gay is back to remind us, in a voice raspily festooned with bank shots and flowers and candy and garlands of diamond-sharp sanctities, 
that delight is always lit from within. This is an illuminating and necessary meditation that unravels masculinity, race, tenderness, strength. All that is extraordinary, yet hidden between the ordinary creases of life. Gay is also the co-author with Amy Nezakumatatu of Lace and Pyrite, Letters from Two Gardens, and with Rose Zinnia of the chapbook River. He serves as an editor at the Press's Q Avenue and Ledge Mule Press, works on the Tenderness Project with Shayla Lawson in Essence, London, and his work at large has garnered him fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation and from Cave Canem. Ross Gay joins us today on Between the Covers to talk about his most recent poetry collection, Beholding, out from the University of Pittsburgh Press, a book-length, one-sentence-long lyric meditation on one gesture, on one move, of a mere handful of seconds, on the move of Dr. J, of Julius Irving's baseline scoop in the 1980 NBA Finals. Claudia Rankin says of Beholding, at once record, collage, group photograph, dance, and archive, Beholding reveals a multifaceted intimacy and lyricism within the history of a game, tracing how this history is interconnected with the saga of our country. Ross Gay has once again proven himself one of our greatest poets. Nikki Finney adds, There are no idle spectators in this new Bougainvillea book-length poem by Ross Gay. Tender, incisive, double-dutching couplets stretch end-to-end. We are hula-hooped on and off the court, then deposited inside photographs and lush gardens, calipers in hand, ready to measure the honey, the scent, the circumference of our eyes, hearts, hand. Finally, Fred Moten says, Nothing happens only when it happens. Right now, we're all tree-born, watching the doctor all but not come down, again and again. We feel the weight of our enjoyment, the heavy duress we're under when it happens, where it happens, where nothing happens, only where it happens. Behold, beholding unfolds that word, moves it and releases it, re-releasing that move and carefully watching again and again for all that differentiates it from all the descendant moves and for all that entangles it with all the ascendant ones. There's no last word on what we hand and hold or on what we behold or on our beholding. Again and again, in the beautiful note he holds and hands, that's what Ross Gay be saying. Welcome to Between the Covers, Ross Gay. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be with you. Yeah, me too. Well, I should start out by saying you're at the top of your blurb game with this book. <laughs> God, hearing them is just like so, so lovely. Yeah. Man, it also feels like, oh, what beautiful readings of the poem, you know, what beautiful kind of considerations. It's so yes. generous. Yeah. Well, well, I want to start with the language these others chose to praise your book with, mm. particularly Fred Moten when he says, beholding unfolds the word behold and moves it and re-releases it. But before we talk about 
what you were looking at, what you were beholding in this poem. I was hoping we could just start with the act of looking itself because it feels like a great segue, I think, from what will be the episode right before our conversation with Teju Cole, who is both a writer and a photographer and a photography critic. And he's always thinking about the ethics of looking. So I'm going to start by reading something from your speech, Be Camera, Black-Eyed Aperture, which you delivered to Nikki Finney in honor of her receiving the Aiken Taylor Prize. And in it, you say about Finney's work. When the speaker's eyes, quote, labor to midwife this moment out all the way, it reminds that proper witness, which is looking, yes, but also feeling attention, attending, is labor. Come seriously to the page. Pay attention. Do your work. Because looking is a generative act. It is a birth. Looking, by which I really mean seeing, makes the world. This witness, black-eyed, is labor. And labor is birth. And labor, let me say it again, means work. So, so let's start with talking about beholding and looking and seeing as praxis. Mm, yeah. I think the poem itself, I mean, the, one of the questions is like, I mean, yeah. I mean, one of the questions of the book is, um, and, and it moves toward this, is like, what are, what are we doing? What are we looking at? What is it, you know, what are we practicing? What are we, all of this looking at constitutes a kind of practicing. So the idea of, looking at a kind of praxis or practice, something that each time, every time we're in the process of, of looking, we're always practicing something. And one of the questions of like, of the book, I mean, I think, I think it happens quite a few times. It's like, what, what are we, like, what are we practicing yeah. <laughs> when we're looking at anything? And, and, and probably two of the things that invite our looking, what do, what do the invitations uh, suggest about our practice, but also what do the sort of um, allowances to be invited or something like that? What does, okay, I'll be invited to this looking. How does that constitute a kind of, um, constitute a kind of practice, you know? Um, that's that's like one of the first things that I that I think of it, but also like thinking too about that little moment from that talk about Nikki's work. That like I'm interested in the in the idea of I mean I'm very interested in the idea of practice and all of the sort of ramifications of practice and like you know I'm writing this book with a friend about playing basketball um, about this long term kind of one on one game we have and I think it's the book's probably maybe it's called practice but. I'm interested in, in practice, one, in terms of sort of the repetition of something to sort of acquire a skill. But of course, I'm also thinking about practice in terms of a practice of, you know, meditation or a practice of, you know, all of the other kinds of practice. Um, but the idea that those practices which are engaged with labor, which are, you know, the result of a kind of labor constitute a kind of making so that our practices are not only things that we do our practices are things that we make you know um among those things being the world <laughs> right well when you yeah. meant this might be a, a tangent but when i just thought of how alan iverson appears in your um in your thank yous 
And is you keep mentioning the word practice, and I don't know if it's Allen Iverson in relationship to the famous or infamous practice clip where where um, he says the word practice. I don't know twenty five times. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it is. That's what I'm. That's what I'm hearing. That's who I'm sort of referencing. That. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, the way that, that, that I sort of think of that, um, that discourse on practice to me is sort of like breaking the idea of the practice as something that you do just in, in the gym, you know, practice goes beyond the, the court, you know, in that case, you know, yeah. Well, let me, let me take this, the line that you just said of practice, no matter what we're looking at and sort of ask you a long elaborate question around that um in your in your uh Kaveh Kahnem talk called fall no more you talk about how you're trying to understand how sight works in a poem about how a poem might itself be a version of sight and how making might be seen and scene making as you just alluded to and you go on to say sight is a discipline for which muscles can be developed and what in our language accommodates the vision of our destruction and more poignantly perhaps how can a poem itself vision the not destruction how can our poems make the unmurdered and unmurderable world maybe i'm asking what kind of eyes does your poem have and then when i was thinking about the eyes of the poem and what they give birth to I think of one moment in the book where you're looking more deeply at the photograph on the cover. And it would be easy not to notice that the boy in the aviator hat has something in his hands at all, Mm -hmm. as he seems to be sort of retreating from the gaze of whoever's holding the camera. But you draw our eyes to his hands and wonder what it is there. And, And through a more deliberate looking, it becomes many possible things. It, it, there's a gener- we can we sort of go along with you in this generative pos- process of what those things could be. And each thing that you name as a possibility sort of changes the valence of, of what the photograph means or quote unquote means. But we finally realize it's an origami bird, which with the aviator hat and a lot of the other things you've been discussing in the, fo- in the poem, which we'll talk about really like makes that that photograph cohere in a totally different way. But so it made me feel like there's a certain, that deep looking has a certain magic to it, that this generative labor of birth can happen looking at almost anything. Yeah. So one thing I was thinking of was a past guest, Vicky now, and she had a writing practice of looking at what at first glance might seem something very arbitrary or static, uh, a film of sheep feeding in a field in the Alps under a cable car that was filmed kaleidoscopically in an art film by Leslie Thornton. But not only did she create her book Sheep Machine from looking at this film, from looking closely every day at a sequence of a few seconds of this film, but also through this writing process, she produced four books of prose and poetry just with this film and not all sheep-centric. I mean, obviously it's important what we look at, um, but also I wonder, because 
just like your book with Dr. J, it seems like it's important that you're looking at Dr. J on the one hand. And I don't make to mean, mean to make an equivalence between him and Vicky now looking at sheep, which may or may not have meaning for her. But also paradoxically, it feels like maybe while there's vital importance in what we look at, maybe we can find the vital importance no matter what we look at if the looking is of a certain type, like what you call the looking of proper witness, of looking, feeling, attention, attending, of laboring. Yeah. I mean, one thing is like, right. So the, you know, the Dr. J itself as a feat, I mean, there's all kinds of reasons that I would be looking at Dr. J and they're, you know, they're, I'm into basketball. Like I watched Dr. J with my dad, like blah, 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 blah. blah. There's all, you know, I grew up near Philadelphia and all these reasons that that might be a kind of subject of my looking um, or that I might choose to look at that. But the, I think, I think one of the questions that the, that the poem is asking is like, exactly. Like it's not, it's not only what what is being sort of looked at. Um, it's, I suppose, are there processes of looking, maybe it's something like, are there processes of looking or practices of looking that make whatever it is we're looking at um, inform or illuminate or even, or do something to the other kind of looking that we might do? Yeah. I mean, I wonder if like, I mean, one of the ways that, like just looking so closely at this basketball move, which like you said, it's only, it's a couple seconds long, you know, we could go, you know, you and I could talk about that, <laughs> that move and other moves, but like, it's, it's a basketball move, but then by virtue of the kind of, um, the, just the staying with it for so long, the, the basketball move, um, it's the looking that sort of makes the metaphors. It's the looking closely and patiently. And maybe another kind, another step, which is like, maybe it's the beholding, like the loving looking that makes all of the other metaphors maybe arrive. That might, it might be something like that. So that, yeah, if, if, if you study a tree, look at a tree for a long time, or, or you look at your, you know, a kid's hand for a long time, just... Of course, all kinds of other kinds of, you know, other kinds of metaphors can show up, too. But that's sort of what it what it makes me think that something about patience and something about. Um, in some way, like well, I said, loving looking, and I, I think in some way I mean, I mean that. And I also mean. There's a particular kind of looking I suppose that is not like like I'm sort of a little bit arguing with myself in my head right now that's not I want to say is not like utilitarian um though though a little bit I'm like but is it utilitarian um like is there a utility and maybe the utility is something like you know um connection or I mean, love is a word that I like. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love, I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do want to talk about what you're looking at about Dr. J and about why. But before we do, I want to ask you about the Nikki Finney line that is also the title of your speech in her honor. So, so uh, B camera, black eyed aperture. And what those lines mean for you, not as a lens into Nikki's work specifically, but 
if it's a lens also into your way of looking? I mean, first of all, it's sort of like one of the things that is, um, that I'm even glad to sort of talk about is that Nikki is such a sort of formative poet for me. And that, that kind of, what do you call it? Like a directive or, you know, kind of like, this is one of your jobs, poet. I forget the title of the poem, but it's sort of like instructions, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, the process of thinking about that, thinking about Nikki's work and thinking about that phrase in particular um, made me think, oh, so one of the things of being a camera, but what kind of camera are you going to be? And the other thing is like, what is a black eyed camera? Um, which is to say like, what is a camera that, um, you know, not to simplify, but what is a camera that is informed, um, that is informed in particular ways with the kind of brutality of looking that is possible by virtue of the camera and by virtue of everything else um, that might instruct us in these other ways of looking. Um, and, um, and, you know, in terms of instruction of other ways of looking, I think it's also, um, I was walking with a friend yesterday and um, she was reading Christina Sharp's book in the wake, which I was, you know, yeah. deeply, deeply informed this book, like really helped me to kind of write it, but finish it, I think. And, and she's meditating hard on looking as well. And there's a, my friend was like, I think your book is a kind of wake work, mm -hmm. you know, um, which is her, her sort of theory um, or notion of work that can come out of the, of the wake that follows or that we live in of the afterlife of slavery, again, to sort of quote Sadia Hartman, I think. Um, but the, so what is the kind of looking, is there a kind of looking that we might sort of be holding, be trying, be practicing that emerges out of understanding the violence that so much looking perpetuates, you know? Yeah. No, it also made me, that phrase also made me think of something from Teju Cole, because he talks about how the very technology of photography, which we might presume, I mean, we are already, we still, even with all the scholarship that we have around photography, we already, I think the instinctual thing we have about photographs is that they're objective and that they capture something rather unlike a painting, even though we know that that's not actually true. But he goes farther and says the technology of photography, which we presume is neutral in and of itself, that the hardware of the camera makes it hard to capture black skin, that the dynamic, dynamic range of film emulsions was calibrated for white skin, and that's true for the light meters in the camera. And it made me think of B camera, that B camera isn't enough in that phrase, um, if, if the camera isn't itself neutral or objective, that being the black eyed aperture requires not just a certain quality of looking, but also a looking at the looking. Yes. And then, uh, and then also this, the fact that you meditate on in the speech about why she says B camera rather than B a camera. But one of the ways when I thought of Teja Cole was maybe when she says B camera, she could also be exhorting the camera to be 
like be mm. camera, like, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, um, be yeah. become, um, maybe through this black aperture. Yeah. And, and, and it's also kind of neat. I think the word aperture means opening, right? Yeah. Um, and so that, that part of the, part of the, the command to be might also be like, you know, are, is there a kind of black looking or, and is there a kind of opening, you know, because cameras are not, um, even talking about the ways that cameras have been used um, often, they're not about opening, they're about closing, you know, mm -hmm. they're about, you know, case closed, there's the picture, as opposed to like, is there, you know, the poem, the, or the photograph, the Carrie Mae Weems photograph at the end of that, of that, of this, um, book, which is called um, Homecoming, I think is the name of the photograph of the two women running toward the camera. There's a kind of my experience of that photograph is is an is an opening feeling. It's a kind of like, you know, it's actually a kind of opening. Um, and there are, of course, we know plenty of of photographs that are not only the opposite, but that are really used to to close, you know, that are really used to, um, to do the opposite of opening, yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, as we move to talk about Dr. J, I, I want to say that it's been fun to watch you introduced by various sports phobic booksellers around the country <laughs> who are, who are surprised to find themselves completely engrossed by your book and also amazed by the the 10 second clip that you're meditating on of Dr. J. So I, th I think it's safe to say this poem is very, very much about Dr. J and very, very much not about Dr. J or becomes many, many other things that have nothing to do with Dr. J and sports by looking lovingly at Dr. J and sports. Um, so tell us about Dr. J why he is the subject of the book, why he's the enduring figure of interest. There's simple things like Dr. J is one of the best basketball players ever play and those kinds of things. And, and then stuff like, you know, I grew up um, just outside of Philadelphia. So the Sixers were our team. And as I was sort of coming to be a, a conscious little person, you know, my dad would have been like getting turned on to the Sixers because, you know, we moved there in like 19... 79 from Ohio and you know Doc got traded to the Sixers in 1977 um so you know we're like <laughs> it's just occurring to me now we all got there at the same time yeah. <laughs> you know yeah and um and you know like um the way these things happen it's like um I I think I felt you know, I, and I don't know if I've said, I've said, I've said this to s someone, like I can feel many things like as though I was sitting at my dad's feet watching the TV and he's like home, you know, kind of stinky from like Roy Rogers <laughs> or something, whatever, in his vinyl pants and, <laughs> and his like blue vinyl socks and stuff. And we're watching like something, you know? Yeah. And there are like two figures who maybe feel most relevant in my imagination. One of them is Marvin Hagler, um, but the other is 
Dr. J because I feel like it was around that time. Like there's so much, it's so, I mean, I could go on and on. It's so kind of mysterious and mystical in a way because when I was like six years old, you know, my dad could dunk a basketball, you know? And when I was six years old, Dr. J could dunk a basketball. Yeah, <laughs> you know there are these sort of overlaps of like these sort of stories in my in my brain and things that I was looking at and witnessing. Um, we were constantly, you know, we were regularly watching games. We went to games. It was like a time when you know you could go to a basketball game, and I think they probably weren't that expensive if we were going. Um, so the fact that I actually saw Dr. J play basketball live, you know, and and then there are all these other things like. You know, the things that I was sort of getting, but I didn't know that I was necessarily getting, like, you know, the Dr. J. Larry Bird fight is a kind of, um, it's a thing in my mind, you know, or, um, you know, when Dr. J. retired, this is an interesting story, like, yeah. you know, when, when Dr. J. retired, you know, his final season, it was like, I mean, it was a big deal probably to a lot of us, probably to a lot of people. And and I was just watching something about Doc just the other day. And he was talking about like, he wanted to leave like, you know, playing good. And he was sort of, and he is one of these people who kind of like left and, and, um, and he was really good. And he made the point of being like, you know, I was second leading shot blocker in the league that year or, oh, you know, wow. and like third in steals or something. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was like really good, which actually complicated my idea of like, how good at defense Doc was. But um, I, for years, I can remember after his last game, watching his last game, which I think probably in my memory, it must have been an afternoon game because I went to the little elementary school near the apartments where I grew up and I shot hoops and kind of almost crying, you know, because it was the end. And, and I remember the game, which was against the Bucks. And that was a good, like Sidney Moncrief and Terry Cummings and them. And it was, in my memory, it was that Doc had, um, it was a tight game and Doc missed like an elbow jump shot that would have won the game last second. That's what I had held for years. Then I, I decided like, you know, in, in 2006 or seven, I was with my buddy, Pat, Patrick Rosal at um he was teaching down at texas so i went to visit him for a few days in austin and i was like and youtube was this new thing and i was like you know let's look at let's see if we can find dr j's last game and we watched it and they got blown out the, what i remembered wasn't at all what had, <laughs> what had happened yeah so for years i had had also this sort of deeply um pained relationship with the way that doc's last game went like all of this so it's just like, and I mean, it was, that was like 20 years of, of, of understanding and experience. And actually, like when I first started writing poems about Dr. J, that was the first thing that I was writing about. I was writing about what it means for so many years to sort of be, have one of my sort of most important sort of, um, you know, sort of public figures have the way that things ended for their, their, you know, performance life or whatever, be like that. And then to come back to it and be like, huh. <laughs> but anyway... That's all to say that he's just really with me as a as a figure. Like I said, like there are some other people, you know, um, who are kind of like that. But he, you know, and in terms of like a sort of um, a visionary in the game, 
like sometimes it's just so easy. Like and nowadays you kind of talk to people who don't know what he did. And you go back and watch a whole clip of any game. And there are three things in every game that he did that is the best thing that ever happened. Yeah. <laughs> it's unreal. <laughs> like, you know, finger rolls from like 15 feet out over yeah. someone. You know, I can go on and on. You can tell. <laughs> well, I want you to, but I, I'm going to see you. You sent me back to look at clips from my childhood that only have resided in my imagination until I looked at the clips and then experiencing some dissonance myself. And um, we shared a little back and forth because our childhood basketball childhood fandoms overlap in time. And I told you that my Dr. J was David Thompson for the Denver Nuggets, who was all but a god to me as a child. But I hadn't looked at him play in in the decades since i hadn't sought out video i i like you went to the games often with my grandfather and um would wait after the games and get autographs but i discovered when i watched so one thing i discovered which i shared with you was that dr j and david thompson were the finalists in the first ever dunk contest and dr j clearly wins that um but i also discovered that it required some effort on my part to see what made David Thompson so special. And much as Fred Moten says, you're looking at Dr. J's move for all that differentiates it from all the descendant moves and for all that entangles it with all the ascendant ones. It felt like David Thompson's moves had been so incorporated into Michael Jordan, who chose David Thompson to induct him into the hall of fame and then Jordan's David Thompson moves had been so incorporated by Kobe mm. that really in a way I'd been watching David Thompson throughout my whole life without knowing it. And that he's become sort of part of the, the language or DNA of modern basketball moves in a way that makes him looking back seem familiar rather than extraordinary. Yeah. But then when I watched Dr. J there is still an immediate sense of wonder yeah. for me. Yeah. And there's something about the way he moves that both feels more like ballet or dance or poetry, but it also feels like something sp specific to a past era or a lost era mm -hmm. of players of another time. Mm -hmm. um, like I think Kareem has some elements and they're not the same moves, but there's some, there's some qualities that maybe they share that feel absent or lost. And I don't know if that feels true to you. I mean, I feel that loss around childhood also, of course, but I don't feel that loss looking at my childhood hero, but I do around Dr. J. So I, I, do you have thoughts on that, on the descendant ascendant aspect of his moves? Yeah, when you say it, it's interesting because you would think that like Michael Jordan would have chosen Doc, you know, because we think of like the lineage of that is it's Doc. I mean, some people, you know, a lot of people, you know, people who know are also like David Thompson. Yeah. But like Doc and then Michael Jordan, who does Dr. J's dunk in the dunk contest. First Dr. J, everyone. First Dr. J dunks from the foul line. First Dr. J does it. Yeah. <laughs> and Michael, <laughs> then, and Michael then Michael Jordan. Jordan does it. But Doc does it again, like 10 years later, too. Um, so and then Michael Jordan does it. And then so you'd kind of be like, well, that's the trajectory. That's the kind of lineage that Jordan is looking at. But I think you're right. And. I mean, people are always doing magic stuff. And part of what I think is so beautiful about all of these, you know, sort of like 
Doc and David Thompson and Kareem and all these folks, you know, partly what they're doing is being like, this is the possible magic, you know? And so it's like changing the, uh, changing even, changing our imaginations actually is what it is. But when I go back and I think when I look at, I hadn't identified this as a feeling, but when I, when I watch Doc and I, and like what I just said, every game he does three things that, that are impossible. <laughs> I think a little bit is like what you're saying is like, everyone's doing impossible stuff. I mean, like I was just watching the highlights of Steph Curry, some of the stuff. That yeah. he <laughs> and it's just, you know, it's just ridiculous. Or Harden, I was watching Harden, you know, I'm so like happy for him. And, um, but I, you know, I think these folks are making things that are, you know, who knows what the trajectories of these are going to be. But like some of this, that, I think my response feeling like, oh yeah, what Doc's, Doc does magic stuff every game is partly because I haven't seen it incorporated in the same way that you're talking about so that it remains in a certain kind of way magic like mm -hmm. who who does like what are you doing yeah <laughs> what are you doing <laughs> <laughs> well do you feel like there's something particularly poetic about basketball like I think of compared to other sports like I think of all the poets who write about basketball so you, Nikki Finney, Natalie Diaz, Samia Bashir, Sherman Alexi, Yusuf Kumanyaka, Major Jackson. I don't think of football poems. Yeah. And when I think of baseball, I often, the iconic baseball things are novels. Yeah. I think of novels with baseball. There's tons of baseball novels. Yeah. But um, it, is there something for you around, is there a sort of twinning for you around poetry and basketball or is that a stretch? I don't think it is. And I've never thought it, but now that you said it, I am going to start to, I'm going to offer some theories. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's hear them. Right when you were saying it, I was like, well, football, you know, I played football in college and I think football is sort of whatever it is. I, I think it's kind of a stupid game, but I, um, there's something about the event and then the long rest and the preparation and the event and the long rest and the preparation. So that's a feature of football. I don't know what the average play is, five or six seconds or something. And then there's a long time in between. Baseball, it's the same thing. You know, like, you know, I dig baseball. I'm, I'm not interested in it at all, you know. <laughs> uh, I, but I get it. I get it. It's, you know, it's neat. Um, and, but basketball is a game that is, uh, I wonder, is a game, and I'm thinking particularly basketball that is, um, I like to say real basketball. And when I say real basketball, I mean without coaches and without refs. Um, is a game that is sort of per, like each, um, each thing that happens occasions the next thing in a, in a, without, without the sort of like instituted pause or the, or the, you know, the instituted break and re reconfiguration or something it's like every every single thing in a basketball game that ha i mean things got abound and all that but it's like a kind of it's the way that a poem might unfold i wonder mm -hmm. you know a way that something becomes possible only because this other thing happened like once the boat arrives in your poem suddenly all of this other stuff is possible in a kind of like you know in a in a um in a less um, 
I don't know what you call it, like in a way that the the steady flow of things happen. You know, I would say like soccer, football, soccer is a game like that too. Mm-hmm. You know, um, yeah, that's that's my first theory. Do you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel that connection. I don't know that I can articulate that connection. It's the, when I was a kid, I followed every sport. Mm-hmm. And now basketball is the only sport that I follow. It's like everything else has fallen away you know, partly just time management for me, but that is the sport that, that endures. Yeah. Even a very ridiculous fantasy basketball league with variety of writers and editors and agents. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. But but, um, I want to talk about the possible and the impossible and, uh, and about the notion of flight and the meaning of flight, the flight of Dr. J, the impossible flight of Dr. J, but, I want to set that up first by talking about joy before we talk about flight and what joy means in the context of your work. In your Be Camera speech, you say, if we make the brutal the ground of our imaginations, the ground of our poetic lives, we come to need the brutal for our poetic and imaginative lives. Our poems will need the brutal, which is not good for our poetry not good for the soul or each other. This is, to me, a profoundly important point or question. How do we write a rich poetry of witness that does not make brutality the ground, a rich poetry of witness that articulates or responds to or contests or resists brutality while not granting brutality the status of essential truth? And I, I think of that when I think of your recent conversation with the Black Joy Collective, where you talked about how different areas of focus in the academy, even when they are peopled by thinkers working to make the world better, are often skewed towards studying what not to do rather than how to do it well. You described somewhat tongue-in-cheek the academic focuses as trauma studies, incarceration studies, brutality studies, misery studies, terrible shit studies. And, and you, you asked why we don't study what we want to celebrate. Why don't we have sharing studies and joy studies? And in the, in the poem Beholding, you say directly to us that you fear becoming a docent in the Museum of Black Pain. But I also wondered if there was a fear on the flip side, too. You are often known as the poet of wonder or the poet of joy. People love you for this. I love you for this. Mm-hmm. But your notion of joy, I think, is really pretty complex and something that I do want to unpack because it involves a lot of essential ingredients that people don't normally associate with joy. But I wondered before we do that, if you also fear not only making black pain the ground of your work, but also being loved and engaged with as if you were joyful in a more facile way, as if you were the happy poet, the happy person making the happy poetry. Yeah. You know, a regular, I shouldn't say regular, an occasional um, irritation that I have is when um, someone will sort of say a thing like, (laughs) Like, oh, you know, Russ Gay, like he can, he can make anything delightful. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I'm just like, man, you didn't read the fucking book. 
you know, <laughs> right. you know, or or like catalog of unabashed gratitude. It's called catalog of unabashed gratitude, and like, you know, and I also like, I also have a sort of, as I think people who have a real relationship with gratitude have a complicated relationship with gratitude. You know, like gratitude is not like, hey, I got my new MacBook, and like, come on, you know, it's like, it's something else. It's you know, and there's. You know, and I, and in a certain kind of way, I think of like one of my ways of of saying it is like adult, adult gratitude or um, adult joy, and and that might be shorthand for meaning some way of sort of being like there's a kind of um, there's a kind of notion of gratitude and a kind of notion of joy that is um, that is sort of offered among other things at, at least. Um, in a kind of capitalistic way, which is something you, you kind of just buy, you know, and you can, you know, it's a kind of, it's a kind of commodity, a kind of tradable good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or it's something, you know, you, if you get this stuff then you'll have more joy and it's just like, nah, you know, like whatever, you know, I'm not, I'm not actually thinking about that. And when I say the word joy, I don't mean anything like that. I'm not, I don't care. I'm just like, you know, that's, that's another thing. Um, when I say joy, I don't mean satisfaction. I don't mean contentment. I don't mean, um, so that's a long way of saying that, um, it's, it's both irritating and probably there is some degree of like f- fear or worry that, um, like, I suppose I wonder like if this is being mis, um, if this is being util- um, read in a certain kind of way that, um, diminishes what I think is the depth of what I'm trying to say. And um, that that can worry me, you yeah. know? So when I'm talking about joy, and I, well, I like to say actually the word grave because when I'm talking about joy, I'm not talking about, I'm talking about something that is informed fundamentally by the fact that we're going to die and what we love is going to die. Mm-hmm. And that joy itself is a kind of, um, the way that I think of joy when I'm talking about joy, I'm talking about, again, this is sort of like a long, a long study joy is for me, but I'm talking about, I think, some kind of feeling that emerges when we are sort of um, trying to hold each other's sorrow and trying to be with each other in the midst of, or in the face of, or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, of the fact of our, of our pain and the fact of our sorrow and the fact of our, you know, very imminent deaths, um, which is not, which is why joy to, you know, it's like happy, uh, joy is something else, you know? And like, and it's, it's not, it's, I think, I think I understand like some people want to be like, you're happy because you have these happy moments in your poems. And I'm like, that poem is about, you know, is about someone who died. Yeah. You know, or that poem ends with me considering, you know, the day that my mother's going to die, you know, which, you know, that or this poem ends, this poem called Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude, it ends with the child of my dream saying, it's um, the end is near and it's sooner than we think. Well, that's why I wanted to bring this up, because I I. I th- I feel like this will be a key to flight because I feel like maybe most people would associate joy 
as flight, as transcendence, perhaps something that where you leave the body, at least something that's buoyant or something that lifts people up. But as you've you just really articulated, especially with the word grave, and as you said in your conversation with the Black Joy Collective, the joy arises from the understanding of something we share in common, which is that we're going to die, that death. So, um, so it feels like joy in a, in a strange way is, is being tethered or, or grounded in this thing that we both share. And you say this thing that's interesting, and I don't know if it brings us back to the aperture or not, but you say that if two people in conversation acknowledge that they're both going to die, some sort of softening happens. And I, I wondered if you could take the ball there around that. Like, is that, that softening to me at least suggests an opening yeah. between those people? I think so. I mean, I think, you know, among the things that makes me soften a little bit and I can, I think I can, I mean, I'll, I can primarily speak from my own experience, but I think, you know, something that makes me softer is when I consider, you know, the person with whom I'm interacting or, um, or whatever, um, is going to die. You know, I think we understand that, that, that when we're even in, in sort of close relationships and like things are, <laughs> things are unpleasant or difficult or whatever. And, you know, there is a kind of like, I think like a understanding that, um, there's, this will not matter soon, you know, this will not matter. And the this will not matter is that one of us is going to be dead and soon, you know, <laughs> it's going to come quick, you know? Yeah. And so, so the, the, I, that's what, that's what I think. And I think in a certain, as a certain kind of practice, you know, which is like, and I think of joy as being like also a practice, you know, that partly the practice, maybe this is a question. I think what, I wonder if one of the practices of joy is to sort of be um, is to be walking with that understanding, sort of perpetually, like with us, you know, um, like that. This is this is you know this is changing. This is changing, and not only that, you know, like what a kind of sheen to the world, you know, to be like, this very well might be the last time that we are together, you know, like anytime nowadays, um, I mean, you know, nowadays, a year ago, I would be with a group of people teaching a workshop or something, there came a point where I was like, this, we will never be together again. This group will never be together again, you know. Um, and probably that's most often or so often the case, you know? Um, And which to me is a source of joy. It's, and it's also a source of sorrow. And so the, the, the fact of the sorrow and the fact of the joy are actually, you know, the sorrow is why it's joy too, you know? And, um, and in a way the joy is how the sorrow is manageable. Mm-hmm. maybe is is uh is is a um is is like um i won't say this right but i'll just try is like evidence of the moments of its manageability or something you know what i mean so joy joy isn't the forgetting 
of death for a moment. It's, it's very much, um, being accompanied by yeah. death. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I think. Like there, I had someone, um, tell me one time she was, she was, um, you know, it's fun. Like if you write about joy, people want to talk to you about joy and it feels like the people who want to talk to me about joy aren't mostly like, you know, look at my, you know, new shoes. They're, <laughs> they're, they're mostly like, huh. And, and so we're kind of like thinking about this together. And this one person said something like she was, she was somewhere and there was a kid, a little kid bouncing around, seeing her reflection in the puddle and then bouncing it in and like, ah, and the, the kid, the older person who that person thought was probably a parent or something was like watching the kid doing this. And the kid was like looking at the adult and the adult was in all this stuff. And this person just started weeping, like witnessing this. And, and we were sort of having this conversation about like, yeah, is that joy, you know? And I, I suspect that that kind of feeling that she had, which I think was probably a feeling of intense connection, although she never said she communicated with these people or anything. I mean, it was a kind of witnessing, I think, actually, um, that was informed also by, I would imagine whether consciously or not, it was informed by the fact of with an understanding of like time passing, yeah, you know, and to me, an understanding of time passing is kind of an understanding of like death, you yes. know. Um, well, this is—I think this would be a great time to hear a little bit of the poem. Yeah. And if you're okay, I selected a little section. Is that all right? Beautiful. Yeah, that's great. So I'll just set it up a little bit. Sure. Uh, so this is at the beginning of this move um, where Dr. J, as you, um, as we've talked about, the best move ever in the history of basketball is happening. <laughs> <laughs> and it kind of travels in time a little bit. And at this point, there's the person, someone who Doc is about to dunk on is sort of witnessing. He's sort of looking at what Doc's looking at. Because Dr. J, we've traveled in time and we've gone back to Rucker Park, which is a famous basketball court in Harlem. And Dr. J is about to dunk on this big guy. And this big guy is kind of meditating on what Dr. J is looking at. Cause Dr. J is looking, the guy's kind of surprised. He's like, wait, <laughs> he's not looking at the rim. He's looking, what's he looking at? You know, he's looking far away. Um, Irving's eyes, which are looking somehow far past the metal backboards or the rim he would imminently rock the rest from looking far past the chain link wrapping the courts and past the high rise apartments and past the elevated tracks of the Metro North he rode to get here and past the Hudson's muddy hall and the gulls swirling above in the gusts and looking far past that even, the big man sees and seeing Doc seen like that, the big man thinks, what is Julius looking at? Before feeling strangely entering into his nose and mouth, the damp salty air of a sea coast, which flashes him to Coney Island, where the night before he and his boys gobbled fries at Nathan's before strolling the boardwalk and three times fell hard in love, mostly with themselves, hugging and shoving blent unbeknownst into the ratty beach plums fragrance, which the big man can tell this breeze isn't quite some as yet indiscernible difference as the coastal air's brine braids with his own salt and grime 
during which he even looks at his own large hands, a gesture of doubt and faith both, sinking his face into them and inhaling and hearing again and again the soft exhalation of water scurrying onto a beach and tumbling back into the sea, the impossibly fine chatter of shell fragments rattling in the furrow, the sizzle of tiny crabs skittering across the slickened sand and the wet kiss of seaweed unwrapping on a shore and a softer sound still of water slithering through the reeds of a salt marsh, all of which, yes, yes, is truly strange, I think. My Chuck Taylor sinking just so into the sand with wisps of beach grass shivering against my shins. This is so strange as a human sound now comes from the water, or more perhaps a net of human voices harmonizing with the water, threading with the lash of waves withdrawing into the collective hush of Rucker Park. You can see in the photos from the school kids far away gaze and the far cast of the men embraced by the tree the soft grooves and crevices of their hands laid against the soft grooves and crevices of the tree, their human hands all gently grasping a limb as if to say, look, look, until they become one slow breathing animal with 18 legs and arms and 10 hearts looking into the near distance where a human song was lapping from the waves lifting from beyond an anchored and just listing ship, newly ballast free, barnacled and slapped at by breaking wakes, its tar blacked boards whining and gasping even at rest and waking from the song beyond the ship as though from the ship, a woman looked somehow as though she was ascending a staircase first timidly and then trusting the thrust of her knees and hips and two good feet, taking them by twos, bounding. And soon behind came someone else, bounding and soaring and someone else and someone else until the ship itself seemed to drag its anchor, twisting to sea. And the live oaks too, turning beneath their shawls of moss and the acres and acres of pines and the people felling them and hewing them into planks for ships like the ones those now in the sky came on, lean into each other and look and look until it's gathered a small village above the low clouds hovering now as much as soaring their arms outstretched as if treading water, their hands and feet making small circles, their chains dangling and slicing rusty wakes into the air until one by one they shake loose and tumble from their ankles and wrists, erasing through the sky and into the sea like names disappearing from a ledger, hovering there like a school looking down at us, watching, as Doc continues his flight over the baseline, his arm extended in the midst of its cyclone for a glimpse cantilevered like a Frank Lloyd Wright building beneath which pours a sometimes tempestuous stream and watching the move again and again like this at 2.59 AM, I notice now when Doc is suspended here in his flight, Kareem's hands no longer look like the flimsy limbs of silver maples 
but like a person preparing to catch a falling body, which maybe explains the worry stitching itself across Kareem's face and the nervous bend of his legs, maybe explains the way he seems to contract his whole torso, his heart's carriage by holding his breath. And the 18,168 spectators in this clip whom I have seen hundreds of times tonight explode with delight. We've been listening to Ross Gay read from his latest book of poetry, Beholding. Well, I want to take this, I mean, people can already see, I think, that Dr. J carries us many places, to Rucker Park, to Coney Island, to slave ships, to you on your computer, and back to the NBA finals, and to Rooker Park again. Um, but I wanted, to, I guess I want to tie this question of joy further into the world in terms of both race and species. Um, perhaps my favorite conversation that you had around the book is on the Versus podcast with Denez and Franny. Um, and there you talk about the notion of entanglement, which is something you got from the book, The Mushroom at the End of the World, on the possibility of life and capitalist ruins. Yeah. which is a great book. Yeah. Um, and in that conversation, you say that whiteness is a set of practices that pretends the possibility of disentanglement, that disavows entanglement, that engages in the dream of freedom, of being free of precarity, free of death. And somehow I associate this with, with the more facile views of joy and flight um, this this description of whiteness, this mm -hmm. pretending of disentanglement. But yeah. I was hoping you could tell us about what you mean more about entanglement and also how your inspiration for entanglement is a fungal inspiration. <laughs> yeah, that's great. So can you say the part about this sort of facile understanding of joy and can you just say that part again yeah i mean the joy when i think of joy as being a, a something buoyant and transcendent maybe out of body and you're tethering joy to the body yeah. to the the precarity of the body and the collective the collectivity of sharing that precarity yeah. is uh is a prerequisite for joy yeah yeah um, yeah 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 i mean yeah that's right so so the, I mean, one of my, one of my favorite metaphors for when I talk about joy is a kind of mycelial metaphor. And it is like, you know, the story or the, fa the fact that in healthy forests, you know, there is a constant sort of communication happening beneath in the soil. And it's a kind of shuttling of nutrients that is trying to make this sort of system um, work um, or this system live, you know, um, and the, so that's the, and you know, in like, um, in uh, Anna Singh and in, in, uh, Anna Singh and um, Mushroom at the End of the World does a lot of this sort of in thinking about, you know, ruins and capitalism and stuff. But I think one of the, when, when you sort of mentioned that um, there, there is, like, yeah, kind of a, I consider it childish um, notion of joy that that does 
that I think probably, and I, and, and I'm just saying it's not joy. I'm saying it's some, something else, you know, and something that I'm not aspiring to actually, um, that does sort of probably like, you know, um, um, the feeling of being like a really free, discreet individual, you know, like not, not beholden, not beholden. Yeah. Like that yeah. is a kind of, a kind of, um, a joy or happiness. I like the word buoyant, like you can kind of lift above everything um, as opposed to what we know sort of biologically, et cetera, is the case, which is that that you never, that doesn't happen. <laughs> it just doesn't happen. Um, nor, nor is that like my, aspiration and and if it is my aspiration i don't you know like despite my best intentions um i don't want it to be you know and my practice is to actually my practice is toward entanglement i think yeah. you know toward recognizing um is it toward a decomposition of the self like when i think of the way uh these mushrooms are they're, they're um, the result of death, but they're also sort of the processors of death. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's like one of the things that's so great about a garden is that you're sort of studying this, uh, like a kind of mutuality, like, you know, like the, you know, a healthy garden has a lot of, you know, like um, the life that comes from decomposition, you know, um, and and it seems like a sort of, you know, hanging around with that um, alerts us to decomposition, but it also alerts us to um, what emerges, um, what, you know, what happens in a garden, what happens from decomposition. Right. So, which is, which is food and flowers and, you know, and then which is, <laughs> relationship to all these critters like the zillion critters that are making this happen well the author of that book also of the mushroom man of the earth of the world talks about the importance of multi-species storytelling which you also do too like with these these basketball players as trees these basketball players touching trees the all the birds in the in the poem and the water in the poem like the the earth of the poem and yeah, when you know, when that part that I read, you know, part of the fun thing about writing a really long poem, you know, today this is kind of really long to me, and um, and reading it periodically is that you catch things newly, you know, um, and I was like, oh, one of the one of the things that that moment there when Doc is flying and everything, everything starts looking at this moment, or it starts looking at what everything is looking at what Doc's looking at. And there's some way that there's a kind of, not to say that there's an argument, but it happens in the poem, which is that um, the, the, well, the thing that I was catching today is that the people and the, and the tree become one creature and they have, you know, one creature with all their hearts and their many hands. Yeah. It was a, it was a kind of product of, it was what happened because they were trying to see what Doc was seeing, you know? That's great. That, that's kind of interesting. I just caught it differently this time. Yeah. It also made me think of Forrest Gander's been doing a, a 
collaborative book with a lichen scientist and um and lichen if i have it correctly they're not actually a an organism they're a composite creature made of a fungus and an algae but they've been collaborating so long these two creatures that they can't live apart but what they're also finding is that it's possible that some of these lichen species don't actually age that perhaps they've become immortal through this collaborative entanglement. But I also, it makes me think of the lichen. One of the things that makes me think of the, uh, that the lichen model is interesting is that maybe it's just a really obvious example of something that's actually true for everybody. Cause I was thinking of, um, Merlin Sheldrake, uh, his book entangled life, how fungi, make our worlds, change our minds, and shape our futures. He says this and that. The authors of a seminal paper on the symbiotic view of life take a clear stance on this point. Quote, there have never been individuals, they declare. We are all lichens. I just I think, that, I think that's great. Um, which also makes me think of the lichen gesture in your, the fact that you have we could say you have 10 pages of acknowledgements. You you do have 10 pages of acknowledgements at the end, but you also have another page at the beginning of, of where you're bound in gratitude. So you really have 11 pages of this book that feel beyond the ways you expose the way you're entangled within the poem itself. Um, I don't know if you could speak to that, um, um, that gesture of yours the space yeah, that I mean, you create for Baraka and Sontag and Alan Iverson and Cydia Hartman and Christina Sharp and, um, and so on. I mean, again, I think it's part of the, um, part of what, you know, the older I get, the more sort of joyous is actually the word, um, understanding of, um, of, uh, not only being influenced, but being made by other people, you know? So not only not, you know, like sometimes it's like, oh yeah, that was a, like, no, I, I actually, this, this creature, which, you know, <laughs> I can kind of identify as a creature, isn't <laughs> me without, like actually isn't me. Like, I don't understand. I was with my, my mother over the holidays and we were together for like two weeks and it was the longest we had been together um, since my dad died. And with something, at some point I was realizing like, you know, she remembers things that I don't remember. And I remember things that she doesn't remember. And, you know, it just occurred to me in a certain kind of special way, like, oh, you're, my memories are in you. You know, like you have a bunch of my memories. Which is, which is to say, you know, it's like one of the million ways that we're like, my mind is actually in my mother, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and it was just such a beautiful moment, you know, too, because my mother's getting older and she's like, you know, just about 80 years old. And it's sort of like, we're going to be like, you know, we're, that's, you think about that. You're like, oh yeah, well, if you forget a thing or, or I just never remembered a thing or... <laughs> it's such a beautiful thing and anyway so the the idea of the gratitudes or the acknowledgements of the way of saying like not only am I you know like thanks it's not only 
that it's like, this isn't here, but for you, you know? And you know, like a book that's really, really, I mean, particularly a section of a book that's really influential and I say it in the gratitudes is that um, section on debt from uh, the undercommons, Fred Moten and Stefano Harney. Mm -hmm. And there is this line that they have um, and they say, we owe each other everything. And to me, it seems like one of the practices of, of the beholden, you know, which is, you know, which is like, thank you, Christina Sharp. One of the practices of the beholden is to be like, well, what does it mean to owe each other everything? You know, I think if we owe each other everything, maybe part of that is the suggestion is that, well, we owe each other everything because we've given each other everything. Everything that I am is given to me, you know, and it does, it's not hard to consider that, but it's really hard in a certain kind of, um, system of thought that imagines that that's not the case. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm, I'm glad we're, we're fully in this second meaning of behold. So behold is witness, behold, being beholden, being indebted to. I also think of in my conversation with Natalie Diaz, um, she would often use the word is something extractive or not is something extractive or is it reciprocal? Are, are the stories, being told, being taken out of the community and told to others, not for the benefit of the people in the community. And similarly with resources, um, are we perpetuating systems of domination and exploitation or are we harvesting something truly based on, on the need? Yeah. Um, and all of this, the, the questions of entanglement and extraction feel connected to this second notion that you mentioned um, with the Fred Moten meant notion of of debt mm -hmm. but beholden also to the earth not just to other people like i mean we couldn't even breathe one breath without plants um and I, when i think i was thinking about that when i was thinking about this conversation like what parts of my day in relationship to the earth aren't extractive on a species level uh, versus relational and giving back like how much of my day, it feels 99 to one. Like I, I don't, I don't know. I don't want to overstate. I don't want to overstate the power of poetry or the power of looking in this regard versus tangible ecological remediation and reciprocity and actually placing humans back within a system where everything's not on our terms. But, but I think about how you say, the more you look at something, the more it grows and I wonder if looking better and looking longer is the beginning of it all. And then not looking away when we see something during that type of looking we, that we might not want to see. Because I think we're partially not looking because of what we might see. If beholding is what will get us beholden again, I guess. And I, I mean, I wonder about like spiritual technologies that we used to use, like in its best form, the Sabbath, where you're not supposed to do anything that moves you forward in the world. You don't exchange money. You don't get in a car. Um, you spend time with people you love. Um, you, you attend to the moment with no sense of the future. It's supposed to be this recreation of the Garden of Eden once a week. But also along with that, the Bible in the Bible, you were supposed to let the land rest. 
every seven years. Yeah. I don't know if this is even a question, but I guess I wanted to hear more about the beholding, the beholding, beholdenness and debt that we have as, as humans. I mean, I think that thing that you said, first of all, is like that question in terms of like how much of my life isn't extractive. I think that's such a, that's such a good question. <laughs> um, just to, to be, just to have it sort of, you know, with us. Um, I also, you know, I'm kind of a little bit, I'm going back to, I mean, first of all, right. Like the, I mean, one of the, one of the sort of mistakes, you know, there are all these sort of, um, um, how to say it? Well, I should say the affirmative, the, if we don't imagine ourselves as the earth, <laughs> we're probably not long for the earth, you know, um, which is to say fundamentally, fundamentally, fundamentally be, beholden to the earth, you know, and it's like, and, and, and not beholden to the earth as a discrete thing, as a discrete, as a discrete entity, but beholden to the earth as beholden to ourselves, you know, as, as earth. And it's sort of like, you know, like when I got deep into gardening or, or as a gardener period, you, I'll catch myself, <laughs> you know, one of the things that like, one of the innovations was, was like, oh, we can just like, we can boil down everything that um, a quote unquote crop needs in a kind of mechanical view and be like, well, it just needs, you know, potassium um, or nitrogen or whatever. Um, and just give it this nutrient. Well, actually there's something interesting about like the decay of, um, of plant matter. And there's something interesting about the decay of manure. And there's something interesting about like actual <laughs> materials, the earth say, evolving with the earth. You know, there's something very <laughs> interesting and, and not to be overlooked by that. But of course, there's a certain kind of fucked up scientific notion that you can just plug in these things. Um, and, and, it's, and it feels to me in some way like connected to this, um, this completely like upside down relationship with, with things. What can we just get out of? Or what, you know, what can we, um, what can we take? How can we boil it down? How do we, you know, the, <laughs> the, yeah. the essence of the blueberry. <laughs> well, I mean, there's a debate in herbalism around whether you can stand, you should standardize something to its quote unquote active ingredient as if something has an active ingredient or whether you, the, the point of it is like the balance of whatever the plant has produced on its own in its own way ha may have something in it that we don't yet know about, yeah. but is of, of some purpose, a buffering purpose, a synergistic purpose. But this idea that maybe we aren't able to identify everything in the system. Right. But when right. you talk about boiling it, boiling down, I, that makes me think of something you said, this might be a stretch as a metaphor, but you, you, you talked about your revision process in one podcast and, you said you didn't pare down, mm -hmm. but that you cracked open in your revision process. And when I think of like, and I took that further, I don't think you said this, but I'm thinking of like, you're looking, it's generative, so that when you crack something open, things are spilling out. Mm 
And yeah. like, so you're looking at Dr. J, but it, the world comes out of looking at Dr. J or Vicky now looks at the sheep yeah. grazing and four books come out of that process. Um, is that what you mean? Is that versus the boiling down to like the essential ingredient that the, the revision is a, is an ex, is a more of a maximalist uh, revision? That's a neat question because I hadn't, I hadn't thought of it like that, but maybe it is a kind of something that's interesting to me about um, like looking at something. I mean, like I often think of like the digression as being just really, I'm interested in the digression, like period. Like I'm interested in like when people talk digressively, I'm interested in like, you know, performance that's digressive or storytelling that's digressive. But I wonder if there's a way that, that idea of like a revising something that breaks open in a way to sort of to pay attention to the many ways that things are connected. I mean, partly I think I'm into, into the digression because I'm like, I love, you know, or like the long joke. <laughs> People hate long jokes. I'm like, man, if you got a joke that lasts four days, I'm so with you. I'm so with you because I'm like, how? Oh, it's, oh, it's, yeah, it's all connected. <laughs> it's all connected. And I am, I'm, I like, I hadn't thought of it in terms of a kind of like the digression or the or the cracking open as a revisionary strategy is maybe having some kind of um, relationship to this um, interest in or belief in or desire to practice a kind of entanglement. But it makes it when you when you posed it as a question, it makes it definitely makes a kind of sense that I'm interested in seeing how many ways can how many ways can we connect this to other things you know which is also just called metaphor i guess yeah but i feel like if i if we called it a fungal revisionary process yeah like you're if you're you're not distilling or boiling down like you said which would mean that you knew what to distill down to but when you're but the way the fungus is um decomposing something but then leaving the material that's off to the side uh, so the digressive elements, they're still there. They're not removed. They're like spilling off of whatever's being looked at, but are still part of the work. Yeah, like the remains as, uh, the remains as possibly sort of, um, the remains of the, I mean, you know, like the artifacts of our exploration um, or the artifacts of our sort of wandering around, wandering, wandering as being sort of uh, also, also the sort of, place of poetry or something you know the place where poems kind of also happen um but yeah like that mycelial um that mycelial notion i like that (laughs) (laughs) well there's i want to move to a a third connotation of beholding so we've done to behold and to be beholden there's a third that i feel like has been discussed less in your conversations that I've encountered. Um, but before we do, I wanted to have you read another section, if you don't mind, and we yeah. can set up that third uh, meaning. Okay. And what I cannot help but think tonight at 3.33 a.m., a bit dazed admittedly from watching Irving's move again and again, is that this is like looking at the surface of the water from below. It's like looking into the sky through the water's slow turning above where you can squint and see bodies looking down at you. 
their slow light snapped by one of the handful of photographers kneeling in prayer at the baseline. This, remember, before the ESPN era, which, yes, there was a before to. And inside of that flash where Doc nearly disappears, the airborne body becomes so quick the absence the light makes. I so badly want the flash. I want the light like a virus blinding the screen and the flight in it to be a window or a door, a door, which right now I will point you to a real door and a real photograph I found looking through the WPA agriculture photos at the Library of Congress for my great grandfather as a young man, a sharecropper in Osceola, Arkansas with hands like a hummingbird's who could fill his sacks kind of quick plus a bit more to sell on the side, which in the parlance of the day, the same parlance as ours incidentally, in which you can own stolen land, in which you can become very wealthy owning stolen land, which all owned land is stolen goods, hot, hot goods, the hot earth, which earth has been bequeathed as property, as heritable wealth, though the meek shall first inherit the heat, but the land, the cotton, the unshared crop, let's hereon call it what it is, loot, plain and simple, which to my great-grandfather's body was, loot, and his life, loot. His life was theirs, like the crop, like the land. They could be, they have been thrown overboard for the insurance. Breathe, let's breathe. Was theft which is to say it was his life he was stealing. Steal away, steal away. And caught, my great-grandfather was made to quickly theorize both flight and disappearance by carving with a sickle a crude window into a man who mistook him for a door he could open and close at will. Yes, we come from poets, steal away. And he stepped through that window by sitting on the sill and lifting first his one leg into his chest and like that looked for a moment as though he was resting. How I wish he could just rest. As though he was simply a young man enjoying the day, looking upon the family of oaks near the road, their limbs always like arms to him, the shadows the leaves cast in the long grass like thousands and thousands of perched birds watching, closing his eyes and breathing in the gentle breeze, slowly circling and gathering in little eddies at his neck, which he was not, because he could be killed for anything, anything. But he did look quickly behind him into this rotten house, the beams sagging with must, the plaster dropping in sticky flakes of flesh be before twisting his name, Frank Jennings, into a wick he lit and tossed burning inside the house while pulling his other leg through, gathering up what had just been cargo, what had just been loot, thrown overboard for the insurance. Breathe, breathe, his body, his life, gathering himself up in his thin arms, running toward the unknown and stealing away. Been listening to Ross Gay read from Beholding. 
So I had many options from all of the acknowledgements that you gave and the ways in which you were bound in gratitude of ways I could do research, which is, which is such a great way to see the subterranean threads that make beholding that move beyond your own self and body. Uh, and I chose to read Christina Sharp's In the Wake and read it a while ago. And it had such a huge influence on my conversation with Natalie Diaz, but it had a, just a huge influence on me. It feels like a touchstone book. There have been, um, there've been moments in the 10 years of doing the podcast that echo forward for years and years where I feel like I'm, I'm, uh, at the very beginning of an understanding. And so I, I have these encounters with different people and I seek out certain people to have encounters with in order to sort of go on a journey around whatever a different guest has presented. And I feel that sort of moment with Christina Sharp's book for me, like um, that it's going to be something I'm actively uh, engaged with for a really long time. And I, I want to thank you for, for I want to thank Christina, obviously, but I want to thank you for bringing me to Christina. But you've mentioned how this book helped you figure out how to finish the poem. And so before I ask or talk to you and then ask about this third connotation of behold, talk to us about how your reading of In the Wake helped bring your book to sort of an aesthetic resolution of sorts. I think there were so many things that were happening. You know, it's like one of these books that I was reading um, as I was trying to, you know, I probably started this, I started this poem a while ago and I got to a point where I was like, man, I wonder if this is going to, if this is going to happen, you know, <laughs> I wonder if Dr. J is going to make this shot, you know, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I remember um, I had been reading a few books um, were really in my ear and I've been reading um, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments, the Cynthia Hartman book. And, but I've been reading this book, um, very closely and there's there's the kind of i mean i can say there are certain things that sort of got introduced because one of the things that i that i i can't remember you know and when i said my friend said oh this is a kind of wake work like i can't remember if um i identified the this beholding as a kind of wake work when I read this idea of wake work. Um, I can't remember exactly quite how that happened, but it wasn't, if it was after, it wasn't long after that I realized, oh, what I'm trying to do is something that she's trying to show us how to do, you know? Um, like maybe this is an example of that. Um, that's something, uh, you know, another thing, I mean, like sort of the, the, what feels to me like the, um, I don't know, well, what feels to me like the book's arrival is this idea of when the, when the words beholding turn into the word beholden. And like that, the three things is like beholding becomes beholden and that the way that you know, just saying beholden, you know, the word beholding or beholden, you could say it, it sounds the same. And, and the word practice. And, you know, it's just, it's actually, you know, it's the, the um, Iverson's 
theorizing and practice is like hearing those things in my head together, boom, it made, it made the, what I feel like is actually the turn of the book, you mm -hmm. know? Um, and the moment where I'm wondering about, this poem is wondering about how, how do we be beholden? Um, Christina Sharp asks that question. Well, this is where I wanted to bring up what I thought was the third meaning of behold. Yeah. Because so you have the so your book Beholding and then the epigraph from Christina Sharp to be held to behold could be said to have several very different readings given that the hold in Christina Sharp's book is the hold of a slave ship. Yeah. So Sharp says to be in the wake is to occupy and be occupied by the continuous and changing present of slavery's as yet unresolved unfolding. To be in the wake, to occupy that grammar, the infinitive might provide another way of theorizing in, for, from what Frank Wilderson refers to as staying in the hold of the ship. Mm. So when Sharp says black people in diaspora are held and held in, and when you quote her as saying, to be held, to behold, to be held and held in are also to be captive and captured at the same time as to be nurtured and comforted. And there's this quote from the book from Glissant um, where he says, this boat is a womb, a womb abyss. It generates the clamor of your protests it also produces all coming unanimity. Although you are alone in this suffering, you share in the unknown with others whom you have yet to know. This boat is your womb, a matrix, and yet it expels you. This boat, pregnant with as many dead as living under the sentence of death. So, when I was when I was talking with Natalie Diaz, and I was I brought up a recent talk I attended of Claudia Rankin's, and Claudia Rankin mentioned that while Black people have not attained the status of being fully human in America, that we and we as Black people, she was saying, still needed to pretend that we had that status to vote, to increase black representation in Congress, to participate in civil society as if. And Natalie really pushed back, rejecting the aspiration toward the human on those terms, questioning the notion of citizen in this context in a way that felt kindred maybe to Sadia Hartman calling emancipation the non-event of emancipation and rejecting the term freedom that it granted as itself being predicated on a sort of anti-blackness. So all of this, when I'm thinking about you and I'm thinking about joy connected to death and flight connected to entanglement and my own questions about Afro-pessimism and black optimism, which I've been reading more and more about, um, I just wanted to know where, where you, how you position yourself to the womb abyss in this regard. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, one of the things that that's a the 
be holding also to me, that's one of the things that I hear. And there are a couple moments in the poem where I, I am, um, I don't know, I'm sort of like um, wrestling a little bit with the idea, I think of, of uh, I mean, I'm, I'm aware of Christina Sharp and other people's, um, is that, is that Glissant passage from, is that quoted in, in the way? I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not and 100% sure, but I think so. It's amazing. It um, is amazing. Yeah. So I'm sort of, you know, engaging with that idea, but I think I'm also, um, I think, and this might be as a kind of like, a kind of wake work that I'm trying to do is trying to um, reimagine the hold in a way, you know, to like, um, to be held, to behold, to be a hold, like, what does it mean, you know, like at the, at the, at the, um, toward the end of the poem, when I say, um, a practice that spites the hold, um, that spites the overboard, you know? So yeah, I mean, all this, (laughs) exactly everything he just said, you know, sort of my father at this end of this movement, you know, he says, and my father, you know, in some, in this way, he flew some from the overboard and likewise showed us how to fly some from the overboard by reaching toward what you love, which is not a citizenship we're talking about, but a practice despite the hold, a practice that spites the hold, spites the overboard. You know, in a certain kind of way, like I think Christina Sharp sort of, I think wake work is something that sort of does spite the hold. It's something that happens in spite of, um, in the wake of, despite. Um, I think maybe one of the imaginings is that there is this one hold, which is like, you know, the the horrible um, genesis of something, um, of the conditions of our lives, you know, among others. And there is another holding that, that um, there is another hold there's another holding um, that is constantly being made, and maybe sort of part of the part of the the practice that I'm um, imagining. And when I say imagining, I'm like joining with other imaginers, <laughs> obviously. Yeah. Is is this other hold actually? You know, and this other this this other this other hold, which is another vessel, which is another another um generative possibility which is actually right now this is the moment we're in another one right yeah now. no I, I um i wonder if it's she quotes dion brand at one point where she says um there are atomic openings in my chest to hold the wounded i wonder if that's the other hold like the, yeah. the, those atomic yeah. openings that's so beautiful and the the uh there's that line that shows up in in this poem beholding like the reaching that makes a falling flight you know which is a little bit of an echo of one of fred moton's poems where i think he says we make you know we make falling look like dancing you know and but the reaching that makes a falling flight you know i it's the reaching or the holding or the attempt to hold which sort of um you know it doesn't negate the fact of the hold, but in some way it's also destroying the hold also, 
you know, or it's it's reimagining another thing. You know, there, there's this other moment in the poem that I wonder, like, sort of thinks about this, like, it's a kind of, well, actually, that's what that's what this poem kind of gets to, you know, with the help of like Sharp and with the help of Iverson and the help of all this, is that we're talking about destroying the world for the world. And I think in some way, like, there is the world that is the, that is many things, among them, the wreckage of, you know, the wreckage, say the wreckage. Um, and then there's this, this other kind of dreaming, which is like, you know, we talking about destroying, we talking about destroying the world <laughs> for the world, which a friend of mine, Jay Cameron Carter was, you know, some conversations with him made me think, we're talking about destroying the world for the earth, actually. Like there's the world and then there's the earth. And we, we're talking about destroying the world for the earth, you know? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Can you, can you talk about how a line from Baraka influences the way that you, you've laid out the poem on the page? Before I forget this, I just want to say, yeah. you know, that famous line of Auden saying the poetry makes nothing happen. Mm -hmm. For years and years, I've thought it's like a Sabbath thing. You know, like it's not that it doesn't do anything. It's that a poem interrupts time as we imagine it. I love that. And a poem interrupts productivity as we imagine it. It stops time, which is a little bit tussling with my idea of the poem as a basketball game. I understand that. <laughs> You know, many things are true, but I was just sort of like, I, I just wanted to sort of, I just wanted to sort of, you know, throw that back to the, to yeah. be like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, um, the Baraka line, which is, um, um, I'm just going to find it so I can read it right. Um, you know, Baraka is the first poet that I read um, and is a, you know, really a foundational, um, really a founda foundational poet um, to me. And he, he says, um, at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean, there's a railroad made of human bones. Um, he also says someplace else, the preparation for pain is minimal for joy a lifetime, yeah. you know. Um, but the railroad of bones at the bottom of the Atlantic is, is echoed in your, in your book structure. Yeah. The form itself is, there's a couple things that are sort of like the poem is couplets in the middle of the page, sort of center justified. Um, so to me, among the thing, the, at least two things that I think of right away, I think of as like the railroad, you know, um, as a form, but I also think of like the ladder. Uh, that it looks that it looks like a ladder, and so I'm very much like sort of both, uh, you know, those when the folks are sort of bounding the Ebo are, are bounding up from the water in a certain kind of way. I'm sort of imagining this thing, you know, the the the, the those two sort of formal elements um, happening at once, you know, yeah. both things being meant at once, you know. Yeah. Well. Just as your notion of, of flight is entangled, your description of Dr. J uses just as much imagery of swimming and water as it does of soaring and air. And, and one of the things the book explores 
and I wonder if it's under the influence of Christina Sharp, is the impossibility of his situation and the impossibility of what he does with this impossibility. So the book opens with the lines, you might have noticed there's nowhere to go. And it ends with the line, we breathe. So the, the, the mystery is this, is this journey, this impossible journey. But Dr. J, who begins in this situation with nowhere to go, in this entangled in the arms of several opponents, including one of the greatest defenders of all time, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, which makes it even more impossible. And he violates the cardinal rule of basketball, which is never leave your feet if you don't know where you're going to go first. Nevertheless, he leaves his feet into the impossible. He flies into the impossible and then in the air with nowhere to go, does the impossible. And it made me think of, again, of, a Nat- of Natalie Diaz in a recent essay she wrote for PEN America. They were asking writers to comment on the upcoming election and on voting. And her essay is called A Practice of Momentum. And I wanted to just read a couple snippets yeah, yeah. to see what it sparks in you. So here's the first one. A basketball court, like the Mojave word for garden, is not so much a location as it is what is done there. More importantly, how it is done. I was taught anything worth doing is worth doing intentionally, worth making a practice of. And a practice is attending of the self in relation to everything that surrounds you. A place is a practice, and that court was my place. I played on it almost every day and night, learning by doing a tradition of energy and momentum, a way to live a life. And then later she says, I learned the importance of impossibility through the momentum of the game, a pathway to endure my country and its occupation with me, of me, and against me, Basketball is one of my imaginations of what might happen three moves ahead or beyond if what could happen does happen, if what could happen does not. If I can shake my shadow left, go between my legs right, spin back and reverse flick the ball into the bucket before the sun has time to slap its shadow on the metal backboard, then what is the world, what is a country, what is a self? And lastly, we are the ancestors of what is yet impossible of America. Hmm. It's beautiful. So beautiful. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I, um, I love that idea of like every, you know, the sort of visioning what's going to happen or needs to happen three or four steps ahead. Um, and, and I also love the idea. I remember when I was, I coached for a while and like one of the things that we would, um, you know, we would try to like get the kids to, to get is that the game is a, there's like a million, you know, there's a zillion moments 
and every every moment there's just moment 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 every single moment is related to the next moment and so if something happens that is you know you dribble the ball off your foot <laughs> like allow the next moment to be immediately in response to that if you can um so as not to like give the other person <laughs> the chance so there is a kind of like a again like when we were talking about basketball and poetry like a kind of rapidity of thought um like things are going to happen quickly and um um be prepared. But the, the other thing that I think is um, about basketball, about, you know, about many things, but basketball and, and is that so often the things that happen happen because the impossible has been introduced to us. Like you can't do this. And then we're forced to be like, well, all right, let's see. And then the impossible, then we do the impossible. You know, yeah, that's kind of, I mean, that's sort of like one of the things that I think connects back to this Dr. J move is like, he, it's an impossible thing. Um, it's like surviving, yeah. you know, that's it. Well, I know you have at least two books in the works. Yeah. Can you, can you talk about them a little bit for us. I know one of them is basketball related and one of them is about black farmers, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, one of the, um, I'll talk about the basketball book first. This this uh, friend of mine and I have had a longstanding kind of full court one-on-one -on -one game, like a workout practice. So we're we're writing these epistolary essays back and forth about, about basketball, um, which is, you know, like I, I just, could write about basketball forever. It's just so, <laughs> you know, it's endless, you know? Yeah. And um, um, just this morning, I was <laughs> I was writing about when the jump step um, or the jump stop, like, um, I don't know if you know, but like when you jump off of one foot, you land on two feet, which in the 80s probably would have been considered a walk, probably would have, but there was a moment and I was sort of actually talking about Sheldrake. I was sort of talking about the other Sheldrake. I think his, I think I think uh, Sheldrake's dad is named Rupert Sheldrake, but he had this idea about um, you know things happen all over the world at the same time sometimes, and this kind of a understanding of things. And I was sort of talking about yeah, it's like the jump stop just sort of happened <laughs> like that. Like one day there wasn't the jump stop, and then like you know <laughs> next two weeks later, like there's jump stops all over the. <laughs> But anyway, I was just sort of like theorizing, oh, when this kid, you know, Jerry brought the jump step, jump stop to our area. <laughs> but it's just the funnest thing in the world to sort of meditate on it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so I'm thinking about that. And I'm also thinking about, um, I'm writing about that with this kid, Noah. Um, and I'm also um, writing this book about my relationship to the land, which started out as a book about black farming, and so there involves like me going to some farms and spending time and asking, you know, just, you know, being with people and, and learning stuff and doing some interviews. Um, and that stays, but it's over the years, it's become, when I first started thinking about this book was 2010. And over the years, it's become really a kind of a book, I think about my relationship to the land. And in a certain kind of way, I feel like, I almost feel like some of the work in Beholding is, is 
going to be informing, it's sort of like the first, first kind of articulations of some of the stuff that I'm going to be getting further into, you know, in, in that land book. Well, could we go out with a, a last reading? Yeah, absolutely. Inside the goggle on the boy's head, a star of light is splayed like a body in flight, or the body is splayed like a star inside the body of the boy. We're the ones put the hat on him at 4.56 AM, the doctor gasping finally through the ghosts of light, legs splayed into a star. And when he emerges, the right hand swoops so low, a pelican or cormorant merging with her reflection in the water before pulling the ball slowly, so slowly toward the rim, which involves every single muscle in his flying body quivered into a singular coherence. The way we bring a child's head to our hip to say, you're okay, I'm here. Kareem and Jamal and Landsberger and the whole spectrum silent except for the cooing mouths of their hands extended toward Doc, toward each other. This flight makes us be. And Doc holding the pill like a skull, gently, not Hamlet in the least, but the way we do with the knowing our bodies have unknowingly, call it tenderness. He is tending, reaching so far like this, he could be planting seeds. He seems to be, he is crawling when he releases the ball at last with the wrist twist that makes the orb kiss the glass with what we used to call English. But tonight forward for the turning toward Doc makes the ball do. Doc in flight makes the ball do. Doc in flight decides to make the ball do kissing. Let's call it kissing. This endless reaching we do. Breathe. Crawling is reaching like this sometimes makes us be. Splayed like a star. Sprawling. Though Irving's crawling is through the air. And as such has the quality of both soaring and swimming. Though, if we look closely, Doc has reached already his flight's apex. And the crawling, the reaching is, is a way of not falling. The reaching is a way of not falling. Such a joy and pleasure to be with you for these you. couple hours, Ross. Same here, same here. It's just like... Um, I feel so kind of like lucky. I feel tons of gratitude to get to have like a deep and slow and wandering conversation. Yeah, no, me too. So yeah, um, I really appreciate it. Yeah, me too. We've been talking today to Ross Gay about his latest book, Beholding. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's episode was not recorded at the studios of KBOO, but it's a volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. You can find out more about Ross Gay's work at rossgay.net. And for the bonus audio archive, Ross talks about poet Jean Valentine and reads a poem of hers for us. This joins so much bonus audio 
from Nikki Finney reading and talking about Lorraine Hansberry, to Natalie Diaz reading from Borges' book of Imaginary Beings, to Teju Cole reading John Berger, Etel Adnan, and also giving us a glimpse from his forthcoming, as-of-yet-published collection, Black Paper. You can find out more about the bonus audio and all the other potential benefits of becoming a supporter from rare collectibles from Ursula K. Le Guin or Ricky Ducournay to becoming an early reader at Tin House, receiving 12 books over the course of a year, long before they're available to the general public. All of this, among many other things, can be found by heading over to patreon.com slash between the covers. Or, if you appreciate what you heard today and would prefer to do a one-time donation, you can do so over at tinhouse.com slash support. Also, don't forget that listeners of Between the Covers can receive 20% off of books at Northwestern University Press, including their new release by Gregory Fraser, Little Armageddon, with the promo code POD20. I'd like to thank Algonquin Books and University of Pittsburgh Press for providing copies of Ross's books. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo, Elisa Ogi, and Spencer Rukti in the book division, Jacob Valla in the art department, Ishwina Cantor in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Browning.